Section 2 of At a Winter's Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by St. Ananda, Norwich, England. StAnanda.com. At a Winter's Fire by Bernard Capes. The Moon Stricken. Part 2. Once, Mazur, I lived in myself and was exultant with the loneliness of fancied knowledge. My youth was my excuse, but God could not pardon me all. I read where I could find books, and chance put an evil choice in my way, for I learned to sneer at his name, his heaven, his hell. Each man has his God in self-will. I thought in my pride, and through it alone, he accepts the responsibility of life and death. He is his own curse or blessing here and hereafter, inheriting no sin and earning no doom but such as he himself afflicts upon himself. I interpret this from the world about me, and knowing it, I have no fear and own no tyrant but my own passions. Monsieur, it was through fear the most terrible that God asserted himself to me. The light was fading in the west, and a lance of shadow fell upon the white bed, as though the hushed day were putting a finger to its lips as it withdrew. I was no coward then, Monsieur, that at least I may say. I lived among the mountains, and on their ledges the feet of my goats were not surer. Often in summer I spent the night among the woods and hills, reading in them the story of the ages, and exploring, exploring till my feet were wearier than my brain. Strangers came from far to see the great cascade, but none but I, and you too, Monsieur, now, know the track through the thicket that leads to the cave under the waters. I found it by chance, and like you, was scorched by the fire, though not badly. Camilla the cause? Monsieur, I will tell you a wonderful thing. The falling waters there make a monstrous burning glass when the hot sun is upon them, which has melted the rock behind like wax. Can that be so? It's true, dear Jesus, I have fearful reason to know it. He half rose on his elbow, his face crossed by the bandage, gray as stone in the gathering dusk. Hereafter, he spoke in an odd whisper. When the knowledge broke upon me, I grew great to myself in the possession of a wonderful secret. Day after day I visited the cave and examined this phenomenon, and yet another more marvelous in its connection with the first. The huge lens was a simple accident of curved rocks and convex water, plain smooth as crystal. In other than a droughty summer it would probably not exist. The spouting torrent would overwhelm it, but I know not. Was not this astonishing enough? Yet nature had worked a second miracle to mock in anticipation the self-sufficient plagiarism of little man. I noticed the rays of the sun concentrated in the lens only during the half-hour of the orb's apparent crossing of the ravine. Then the light smote upon a strange curved little fan of water that spouted from a high crevice in the mouth of the shallow, vetrified tunnel, and devoured it, and played upon the rocks behind, that hissed and sputtered like pitch, and the place was blind with steam. 
but when the tooth of fire was withdrawn, the tiny inner cascade fell again and wrought coolness with its sprinkling. I did not discover this all at once, for at first fright took me, and it was enough to watch for the moment of the light's appearance, and then flee with a little laughter. But one day I ventured back into the cave after the sun had crossed the valley, and the steam had died away, and the rock cooled behind the miniature cascade. I looked through the lens, and it seemed full of great white light that blazed into my eyes, so that I fell back through the inner fan of water, and was well soused by it. But my sight presently recovering, I stood forward on the scoop of rock admiring the dainty hollow curve the fan took in its fall. By and by, I became aware that I was looking out through a smaller lens upon the great one, and that strange whirling mist seemed to be sweeping across a huge disk within touch of my hand almost. It was long before I grasped the meaning of this, but in a flash it came upon me. The great lens formed the object glass, the small, the eyeglass of a natural telescope of tremendous power that drew the high summer clouds down within seeming touch and opened out the heavens before my staring eyes. Monsieur, when this dawned upon me I was wild, that so astonishing a discovery should have been reserved for a poor ignorant Swiss peasant filled me with pride wicked in proportion with its absence of gratitude to the mighty dispenser of good. I came even to think my individuality part of the wonder and necessary to its existence. Were it not for my courage and enterprise, I cried, this phenomenon would have remained secret of the nature that gave birth to it. She yields her treasures to such only as fear not, I had read in a book of Hygens, Guinand, Newton, Herschel, the great high priests of science who had striven through patient years to read the hieroglyphics of the heavens. The wise imbeciles, I thought, they toiled and died, and nature held no mirror up to them. For me, the poor Camilla, she worked in secret while they grew old and passed unsatisfied. Brilliant projects of astronomy whirled in my brain. The evening of my last discovery I remained out on the hills and entered the cave as it grew dusk. A feeling of awe surged in me as dark fell over the valley, and the first stars glistened faintly. I dipped under the fan of water and took my stand in the hollow behind it. There was no moon but my telescope was inclined, as it were, at a generous angle, and a section of the firmament was open before me. My heart beat fast as I looked through the lens. Shall I tell you what I saw then and many nights after? Rings and crosses in the heavens of golden mist, spangled as it seemed with jewels, stars as big as cartwheels, twinkling points no longer but round like great bosses of molten fire, things shadowy, luminous, of strange colors and stranger forms that seemed to brush the waters as they passed, but were in reality vast distances away. Sometimes the thrust of wind up the ravine would produce a tremulous motion in the image of the focus of the mirror, but this was seldom. For the most part, the wonderful lenses presented a steady curvature, not flawless, 
but of magnificent capacity. Now it flashed upon me that, when the moon was at the full, she would top the valley in the direct path of my telescope's range of view. At the thought I grew exultant, I, I, little Camilla, should first read or write the history of this strange satellite. The instrument that could give shape to the stars would interpret to me the composition of that lonely orb as clearly as though I stood upon her surface. As the time of her fullness drew near, I grew feverish with excitement. I was sickening, as it were, to my madness. For never more should I look upon her willingly, with eyes either speculative or insane. At this point, Camilla broke off for a little space, and lay upon his pillow. When he spoke again, it was out of the darkness, with his face turned to the wall. Monsieur, I cannot dwell upon it. I must hasten. We have no right to peer beyond the boundary God has drawn for us. I saw his hell. I saw his hell, I tell you. It is peopled with the damned. Silent, horrible, distorted in the midst of ashes and desolation. It was a memory that, like the snake of Aaron, devoured all others till yesterday, till yesterday, by Christ's mercy. It seemed to me, as the days wore on, that Camilla had but recovered his reason at the expense of his life, that the long rest deemed necessary for him after his bitter period of brain exhaustion might, in the end, prove an everlasting one. Possibly the blow to his head had, in expelling the seven devils, wounded beyond cure the vital function that had fostered them. He lay white, patient, and sweet-tempered to all, but moved by no inclination to rise and reassume the many-colored garment of life. His description of the dreadful desert in the sky I looked upon merely as an abiding memory of the brain phantasm that had finally overthrown a reason, already tottering under the tremendous excitement induced by his discovery of the lenses and the magnified images they had presented to him. That there was truth in the asserted fact of the existence of these, my own experience convinced me, and curiosity as to this alone impelled me to the determination of investigating further, when my hand should be sufficiently recovered to act as no hindrance to me forcing my way once more through the dense woods that bounded the waterfall. Moreover, the dispassionate inquiry of a mind less sensitive to impressions might, in the result, do more towards restoring the warped imagination of my friend to its normal state than any amount of spoken skepticism. To Camilla I said nothing of my resolve, but waited on, chafing at the slow healing of my wounds. In the meantime the period of the full moon approached, and I decided at whatever cost to make the venture on the evening she topped her orbit, if circumstances at the worst should prevent my doing so sooner and thus it turned out. On the eve of my enterprise, the first fair spring of rain in a drought of two months fell to my disappointment among the hills, for I feared an increase of the torrent and the effacement of the mighty lens. I set off, however, on the afternoon of the following day in hot sunshine, mentally prognosticating a favorable termination to my expedition and telling Madame Barbarie not to expect me back till late. 
In leisurely fashion I made my way along the track we had previously traversed, risking no divergence through overhaste, and carefully examining all landmarks before deciding on any direction. Thus slowly proceeding, I had the good fortune to come within sound of the cataract as the sun was sinking behind the mountain ridges in my front, and presently emerged from the woods at the very spot we had struck in our former journey together. A chilly twilight reigned in the ravine, and the noise that came up from the ruin of the torrent seemed doubly accented by reason of it. The sound of water moving in darkness has always conveyed to me an impression of something horrible and deadly be it nothing of more moment than the drip and hollow tinkle of a gutter pipe. But the crash in this echoing gorge was appalling indeed. For some moments I stood on the brink of the slope, looking across at the great knife of the fall, with a little shiver of fear. Then I shook myself, laughed, and, without further ado, took my courage in hand, and scrambled down the declivity and up again towards the cleft in the rocks. Here the chill of heart gripped me again. The watery sliding tunnel looked so evil in the contracting gloom. A false step in the humid chamber and my bones would pound and crackle on the rocks forty feet below. It must be gone through with now, however. And taking a long breath, I set foot in the passage under the curving downpour that seemed taut as an arched muscle. Reaching the burnt recess, a few moments sufficed to restore my self-confidence, and without further hesitation I dived under the inner little fan-shaped fall, which was there indeed as Camille had described it, and recovered my balance with pulses drumming thicker than I could have desired. In a moment I became conscious that some great power was before me. Across a vast irregular disk filled with the ashy whiteness of the outer twilight, strange, unaccountable forms, misty and undefined, passed and re-passed and vanished. Cirrus they might have been, or the shadows flung by homing flights of birds, but of this I could not be certain. As the dusk deepened they showed no more, and presently I gazed only into a violet, fathomless darkness. My own excitement now was great and I found some difficulty in keeping it under control. But for the moment, it seemed to me, I pined greatly for free commune with the liberal atmosphere of earth. Therefore, I dipped under the little fall and made my cautious way to the margin of the cataract. I was surprised to find for how long a time the phenomena had absorbed me. The moon was already high in the heavens and making towards the ravine with rapid steps. Far below, the tumbling waters flashed in her rays, and on all sides great tiers of solemn trees stood up at attention to salute her. When her disk silvered the inner rim of the slope I had descended, I returned to my post of observation with tingling nerves. The field of the great object lens was already suffused with the radiance of her approach. Suddenly my pupils shrank before the apparition of a ghastly gray light and all in a moment I was face to face with a segment of desolation more horrible than any desert. Monstrous growths of leprosy that had bubbled up and stiffened, fields of ash and slime, the sloughing of a world of corruption, hills of demon, 
fungus swollen with the fatness of putrefaction, and the midst of all dim, convulsed shapes wallowing, protruding, or stumbling aimlessly onwards till they sank and disappeared. Madame Barbary threw open her hands when she let me in at the door. My appearance, no doubt, was ghastly. I knew not the hour nor the lapse of time covered by my wanderings about the hills. My face hidden in my palms. A drawn feeling about my heart. My lips muttering. Muttering fragments of prayers. And my throat jerking with horrible laughter. For hours I lay face down on my bed. Monsieur has seen it. I have seen it. I heard the rain on the hills. That lens will have been blurred. Mansour has been spared much. God in his mercy pity thee. And me, oh, Camille, and me too. He has held out his white hand to me. I go when I go with a safe conduct. He went before the week was out. The drought had broken, and for five days the thunder crashed and the wild rains swept the mountains. On the morning of the sixth, a drenched shepherd reported in the village that a landslip had choked the fall of Butte and completely altered its shape. Madame Barbary broke into the room where I was sitting with Camille, big with the news. She little guessed how it affected her listeners. The bon Dieu, said Camille, when she had gone. Has thundered his curse on nature for revealing his secrets? I, who have penetrated into the forbidden, must perish. And I, Camille? He turned to me with a melancholy sweet smile, and answered, paraphrasing the dying words of certain noble lips. Be good, Monsieur, be good. End of section two.